are off to another running start. Um, by way of recall, we want to just go back and remember some of the basics of what we did last week. And hopefully, maybe even have an opportunity for you to give me a little bit of input if there were any additional insights or thoughts that you had. Last week, we did chapters uh, 33 and 34 of Ezekiel. In 33, we saw what? What was the major theme of that particular chapter? What was God's message? It was about the watchman. Now, what did we learn about the watchman, the principle of the watchman? Okay, his job is, I think it's really interesting that God opened the chapter by saying, this is what a watchman is, right? <laughs> it's kind of like one of those questions to Israel, right? And they're going, yeah, okay. And as he's speaking to Ezekiel, he says, and Ezekiel, I appointed you my watchman, right? Now, the, the, the watchman is generally to stand upon that hill and look around about and perceive weather and watch for um, attacks from enemies and so forth, Right. But with Ezekiel, it's slightly different, right? What was Ezekiel to watch for? The word of God. He was to, what God said to Ezekiel back in those first three chapters, when when we saw uh, Ezekiel introduced to us as the author, we saw him say to Ezekiel, I'm appointing you a watchman. You are to listen to my word, and then you're to do what with it? Warn everyone and give, give the word to... Now, what was the warning that God was telling Ezekiel to give? Danger is coming. <laughs> danger is coming. And did he explain why danger was coming? What did we learn in those first three chapters about this people? They were rebellious and stubborn. Rebellious and stubborn. Um, do, you think, do you think humanity has changed that, that pattern? No. <laughs> I would say that... I have to say there are times, at least in my life, not the bigger picture, obviously, salvation-wise, but, but there are times in my life that I, too, am rebellious and stubborn. And what would you say is the solution to that before the Lord? Repentance. Did you see that turn, 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 and repent is a key repeated word in this book? Yeah. Okay, so the watchman is going to warn. We have a people who are stubborn and rebellious. Um, is the watchman um, at any time allowed to just say, I give up? There you go. Boy, did God ever work that one out well, didn't he? Because he, may, he really in, uh, instituted a principle through the watchman that regardless of whether the people listen or not, the watchman's responsibility is still to warn, and God holds them accountable for his responsibility, his part in it. So in the church, what are we to do then? Yeah. Is there a danger coming ahead for anyone who has not bowed the knee to Jesus? What is the danger for them? Also death, right? I mean, there's a physical death, obviously, that's being demonstrated to us in, in Ezekiel. But in the spiritual realm, there's an eternal destiny, which would you say that's a greater degree of danger than even the physical? Yeah. So we, too, although I, I realize each one is given, each of us are given a variety of gifts. But I would say that the principle, just like the principle of sharing the gospel, you don't all have to be evangelists to share the gospel, right? You still have a responsibility to do that, even if you don't have a spiritual gift of, of evangelism. 
The same thing would be true about the idea of the watchman, I believe, that whether or not you and I have a spiritual gifting as a prophet, and, you know, the prophet gift is obviously given to just a few, um, we still have a responsibility, do we not, to one another and to the church and to our neighbors outside of the church even to be watching and to be warning, but particularly within the church. Now, this is one distinction. I, I brought it up a couple of times, but I want to bring it up again, and that is the responsibility of the watchman is to who? God's people. I mean, I think that so often we very quickly, by knee-jerk, just go right to the outside world of the unbelievers. I'm telling you, we need to be watching. God says about his house that judgment begins at, at, the, at the household of faith, that God is watching over his house to make sure that his house is being obedient. Why is that? What was the problem with the nation of Israel? Yeah. They're prof- they are supposed to be in covenant with God, and yet they are profaning his name. So in the church, are we ever in danger of doing the same, yeah. profaning his name? Uh, absolutely. Now, you know, we would all like to believe, and I, st- and I still am because I'm just of that nature. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt to assume that most of us are doing our very best. You know, we want to honor the Lord. But when you look around and you see your brother or your sister falling away from the path, and he's not, what what God says is do not go to the right nor to, to the right nor to the left, but to stay upon the path. Set your eyes upon Jesus, right? Um, And so as you and I are watching in our daily walk with the Lord, we need to be very careful that we are paying attention to one another as well. And so with that, what do you think comes as far as our responsibility? What did God say concerning the watchmen? Um, what was the responsibility of those who were to hear from the watchmen? What were they to do when the watchmen warned? Yeah, there is a, there's a responsibility for the one who's hearing the watchman to turn. So... You know, I don't know where any of you all are in your lives or where you are, if you're on the receiving end or the giving end, either way. But I know this, you have a responsibility on both sides of the fence to both watch and be looking around you, watch it being, and the watching should be as a good shepherd who loves the sheep, right? And the motivation should be love, first and foremost, to God himself and to want to protect his word, but secondarily, love for your fellow sheep, Right? But then secondarily, what if you're the one someone has come to and confronted? That is totally... (laughs) Very good, Becky. You're absolutely right. There is no reason for you to bother coming to me because it's good, right? No, exactly. So, you know, I guess I would just say this as, as just kind of a thing in the back of your mind as we're continuing this book of Ezekiel, that you always see yourself on both sides of it. You know, when somebody comes to you and confronts you and says, look, you really shouldn't be doing this or that because A, B, or C, then you need, to, you need to sincerely take that before the Lord and go to his word and say, what does God's word say about this? Is this truly a word from the Lord or is this person just, you know, being, you know, critical or whatever? Um, I've had the experience of both, of some people coming to me and saying, look, this is sin. And I've had to evaluate my life and say, you're right, that's not good. 
I need to turn. And I've, and, and I've had the, also the experience of people coming to me and saying, you should be doing A, B, or C. And I have come to realize that what they were doing is trying to pose on me their personal preferences about how they're living their life. You do have to weigh it out. But as you and I do this Ezekiel study, I think that you and I need to not just take this and plop it into history and observe it externally and say, that's outside of me. That's them, right? But rather to see how might I apply these things that Ezekiel is teaching about their history that might relate to me as God's child. All right? So now, with that said concerning the watchmen and the shepherds in chapter 33 and 34, then we are prepared then to enter into the next segment, which is today's homework. So let's, let's move on to, turn, if you will, just open to chapter 35. That's where we're going to pick up. And I am going to try to stay as focused as I can on just attacking chapter 35 and 36 inductively. What did we do? So that we can have time to talk about these uh, the structural uh, layout of each of these books a little bit more carefully. We've not been able to do that the last few weeks, so I want to try to do that today. Okay, so starting with chapter 35 over here, let's look at our keywords. What do we have for keywords in this book? Oh, yeah. So we have Mount Seir. And wh- what else is Mount Seir called? Edom. All right. What did you learn about Edom when you did your personal research on that? Did anybody do word studies and go to a history book and look it all up? And Good. Isn't that interesting? So what do you see about their, the kind of their history then in what you saw them, about them being, who is Esau and how might that relate to what we see in Edom today? Okay, was Jacob's brother. So what was the problem with Esau? Uh, okay, yeah. Oh, boy. Now, it's not just outlook, Margaret, but, but you're absolutely right. You're, you're dead on target. What was fundamentally the sin of Esau? No, no, no. Jacob stole the brothers. But what was Esau's sin? Yeah. And what was the birthright that we're talking about here that he was willing to just give up for a bowl of porridge? That is the, fu- the, bou- the, the fundamental of this is, is what had been the promise to his father and to his grandfather? That there would be that there would be blessed and there would a land a seed and a nation right that there would be this and that through this seed now did Abraham understand what the seed was a promise of you don't think so Where was the seed first mentioned in Scripture, by the way? In Genesis chapter 3, right? The seed was promised to who? 
Adam and Eve. Did Adam and Eve know who the seed was? No, of course they didn't know all the details. I'm not saying they knew the plan of salvation that his name was Jesus at this point. But they knew about the seed. And what did God tell Adam and Eve the seed would do? Crush the head of Satan. So when Abram had the seed also offered to him, when we go into the New Testament commentary, it says that what did he do that credited him as righteousness? That he believed God. He believed God about the promise of a seed that was going to come through his loins and that that seed would be the, that one eventually that would crush that head of Satan. That thread of truth was run through God's gospel because it says to us in Galatians that when God gave him these promises, he, he gave him the gospel and that Abram believed him. All right? So by the time we get down to Esau... The, the importance of a coming seed, which, which would crush the, the head of Satan eventually, right? For us, we understand that now. But back then, the, every generation anticipated it was going to be their, their baby, right? How do we know that? And Becky, you touched on it. Go for it. When you go back to the namings of children back in the, uh, those generations, particularly, the names actually tell the story of the gospel plan of salvation and what the people were anticipating, right? And when Eve gave birth to a son, she actually said, Ooh, it's a, it's a son. And what did she obviously in her heart go, Ooh, it's that seed that would do what? Crush the head of Satan. See, it, with every generation, they were looking forward to that one day, that seed that would come that would crush the head of Satan. So do you think this is a principle of truth that was passed on th- from generation to generation? Absolutely. Now, do we get all those details in the, in the record of the account? No. But it is obvious that they knew the seed was coming. Every generation named children in regard to that coming seed. They were looking forward to that coming seed. And when Abram was, was promised a seed, Galatians says he understood this was the gospel. And that when he believed God, then God credited it as righteousness. If he was just promising that God was going to give him a child and land and eventually develop a nation, would that saved him? Good question, huh? Would that have saved him? No, I don't believe so. He was believing on the promise of God's salvation. He was believing on the coming of the seed. And by virtue of faith on that coming seed, he was saved. So in the Old Testament, they're believing on the... uh, When you're down here and looking forward, they're believing on the coming of Jesus. Down here on this side, we are believing what? That Jesus was that seed and that he came. Are you kind of pulling? Isn't that neat how the scripture just, it's a, there's continuity and flow from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through. I love it. I love it. Okay, so now we have Mount Seir. We have Edom. The problem with Esau was he obviously was not putting his faith or belief on that coming seed or just didn't care. He was apathetic about it. And so he was so apathetic. And this is where the scripture, I think, is profound when he says he sold his birthright for a bowl of porridge, for a meal, because he was hungry at the moment. That just shows you how much scorn he had and how much 
contempt or just plain, I don't care. I don't care. Are there people in your life that right now just don't care? Okay, yeah, 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 Jesus came. I know there's a God. And, I, and okay, I'm not saying there isn't a Jesus, but I don't care. I don't want him. I don't, I don't, it's not important to me. They're apathetic. <sighs> Doesn't that just absolutely frustrate? It frustrates me and it breaks my heart. All right, so we have Mount Seir and Edom in chapter 35. And we have other keywords. What were some of the other words that you came up with for keywords in that? Okay, that one Kay gave to us, didn't she? She said, please mark bloodshed. What else? Desolation. I love that one. I'm going to put that one all the way at the top because the I will statement, which is what Kay then later in the week said, please make a list on the I wills. Boy, was that not revealing. And did it not, did it help you guys develop your chapter uh, progression, your theme chapters as you got into it? It was so helpful to me. I thought I had my chapter or my paragraph themes are all in place. And then when I did my I will list, I went back and kind of redid everything, reworked it a second, maybe even a third time because of, because of the I will. Um, a desolation. Any other keywords? Against. Thank you, Susan. You are so good. I thought I was going to be the only one to do that word. But I love that. What are the things that he is against? Mount Seir and? Who's again? The, the word against was used twice, right? Hold on. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah. The enemy is against you and I am against the enemy. Do you see a contrast? Yeah. So there's a good contrast. If you didn't mark it, you might want to make that, that note in your observation worksheets that you, they are against you, but I am against them. Right? All right. Um, and then of course, Israel itself would be a key word if you did not mark that, because that would be the, the uh, counter to Edom, right? The contrast in Edom. Now, how does God describe Edom? Let's just do a little list, a teeny weeny mini list on Edom. How does God describe them? What were the descriptive words in here that God uses? Did you happen to mark those descriptive words by chance? You can start in verse 5 and 6 and see a couple of, of words that describe them. Enmity, okay, that they, they are an enemy, in other words. They're an enemy. What else? Okay, blood. I didn't see that one. Okay, they shed blood. Okay, yeah, that's what they do. But how does he descriptively describe them? Okay, they have not it, and, and it says, um, right, okay, so they hated. Oh, they did not hate bloodshed, you're right, that's a better way of putting it. Did not hate bloodshed. Okay. Now, you know, that's interesting. Real quick. They did not hate bloodshed. Why should we hate bloodshed? Okay. The life of the, f- and where, and who created life? 
God. And in whose image did God create life of man? In his image. And so why should we hate bloodshed? Because we're killing his image. We are creating his image. Now, that does not mean in time of war you cannot kill the enemy. The enemy, God himself, shows us that he, he, he will uh, take the life of those who hate him. Correct? All right, now, so it's, they do not hate bloodshed. What else? Okay. They delivered um, Israel to the sword. That's right. So what do you see in that point about them? Yeah, they were truly an enemy, just as it, oh, we've already established that they were an enemy of, of Israel. Anger and envy, very good. Envy, what verse was that one in? I'll put that in 11. Hate, did not uh, hate bloodshed was what verse? Six. And enemy was five. Okay. And, okay, good. So enemy in verse five did not hate bloodshed in six. They delivered Israel to the sword. Uh, What verse was that one? Also five. And envy. Eleven. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's what they were saying. The life is in the blood and we are created in the image of God and therefore we're destroying God's image. Uh, image when we commit murders which is why God says we are to take the life of anyone who does that if they because it's just like Esau if you so despise God that you are willing to uh, defy him and reject him and destroy what he considers good and um, valuable then if you are so in defiance against God, then, then you are to be put to death because that's a, that's a defiance that he will not tolerate. He says in 11, he says, according to your anger and according to your envy, which you showed because of your hatred against who? Israel. So hatred against Israel and anger also against Israel. Those were both in verse 11, correct? Okay. All right, so we see now how God... Dis- I also, there was also another one. I, I got it later uh, in 12. Get, go ahead. Revilings. revilings, that's right. Revilings. Okay, and what verse is that? 13. And the reviling was 12, is that correct? 12, okay. All right, so, wow. Just by making a little teeny weeny, yes, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is, this hatred against Israel, making them their enemies. This list can go, can be very extensive, and I, you know, we're not going to have to develop it fully, but absolutely, 
this is, what it does for you and me when we make a list like this, though, is reveal something. What does this reveal to us about the way God then speaks in this particular message to Ezekiel about this, this nation called Edom? Okay. Thank you. It is justified, right? I just, I think about what Pastor Rob said yesterday in his sermon. And I thought, wow, that, his, was his sermon, those of you who went, was that not awesome? I just went, oh my gosh, what's he doing listening to our tapes? <laughs> really, I swear he's listening to our tapes and he's, and he's implying them right into his sermons. But, you know, one of the things that we, he talked about was right out of Second Thessalonians, right? Why don't, we, why don't we look at that one together real quick? Because I, it really, truly does fit right into Ezekiel. Let's go there, if I can find it very quickly. Okay, there it is. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and he took us um, from, well, he took us from 2, I think, to 8. Let's start at 4. Okay, so let's start, let's start here. I want to start in 4. He says, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you, you believers of Thessalonia, uh, among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Would you say Israel has had to endure persecutions and afflictions? Does Edom not fall in the category of the enemy who inflicted some of these toward them? Absolutely. He says, and this this endurance that these Thessalonians... um, maintained and did not deviate then from the truth of the the message that God had given to the church. It's a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. So that's where uh, Pastor Rob camped for a little bit yesterday, talked about the idea of Christ himself and God the Father being righteous in judgment, right? And he said exactly what we said last week. What happens if Jesus, who is righteous, does not judge evil or unrighteousness. He would not retain his righteousness, right? To be righteous, to be just, you must judge and, and condemn and judge the unrighteous, the evildoer. His message, you know, one of the things he was trying to tread lightly on, and, and I totally understand it, but man, the church needs to hear this message. God will judge, and it's righteous judgment, and this is what the watchman is to, to say to the sheep. Sheep, be careful. There will be a day of judgment, and sheep, you need to be out there telling the unsaved world as well, P.S., right? And he's saying if, if Jesus will not judge, so, so the idea, he, he showed an interview, on the video of a man on the street kind of a question. And, and he, they, one of the questions was, do you believe in heaven? Of course, everybody's, well, not everyone in there, but a lot of them were like, well, yeah, I, I believe in something, a kind of heaven, right? And he said, but what happened when he said, do you believe in hell? What did they say about God and about hell? Probably a lot of them didn't believe in hell. Okay. Thank you, Brenda. A loving God would not judge who would not send someone to hell. Yes. Um, I've even talked to a person that made that comment and, t- and then made the comment that, well, if he did, I wouldn't know anything to do with it. 
And this person claimed to be a Christian. Yes. Yes. Isn't that amazing? If that's the kind of God he is, then I don't want to have anything to do with him. Right. And, you know, this is interesting because people do see, seem to have that attitude. Even young believers, I can excuse them, at least up in the beginning, until we train them and teach them. But when you come to a place like this where we are, and we've been studying this book, and you know about the atrocities, the abominations, the, I mean, the putting of infant babies upon an altar and slaying them to foreign gods, to other gods, gods which are not even gods at all. Uh, people who committed uh, all kinds of fornications and adulteries with one another and against one another and, most importantly, against God himself. What about the holy thing? The what? The holy oh, yeah. All, okay, so should God not judge those things? And, uh, and for me, I always say it comes down to what if it were in your family? What if an, an, a, a horrible event were to happen to you or to someone in your family? your child, your husband, your whatever, would you seek for justice? Isn't it an amazing thing when it becomes personal all of a sudden, like, yeah, judge him. Yeah, that's right. You should judge him. Is there not an intuitiveness within us that says, yes, there needs to be justice for the unjust. The unjust must be dealt with there must be a punishment but when it comes to an eternal punishment we have we start to go well it's the same nobody wants to feel convicted but well he wouldn't judge me that way then either right 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 maybe maybe that's it maybe it's a fail safe because if if you hope that god is so loving that he would never judge then that means he's so loving he would never judge you maybe that's what what their emotion is yeah there are so here we have in this book of of ezekiel a storyline where we've been seeing judgment 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 and and to me i look at this and say you know god is just and did they deserve it yeah do i deserve it we do all deserve it. Now, what gives me... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Jump ahead. <laughs> 36, verse 3, Therefore says the Lord of God, For good reason they have made you desolate. I love that. For good reason. Did you caught that one, too? I did, too. And, I, and even though it didn't fit anywhere perfectly in my outline... It wasn't, but it, and he's talking about the land to, because the land has become desolate, but it's become desolate for a good reason, right? And the good reason is God's reason because of what the people have done, how they have violated their covenant, how they have, in Ezekiel 36, done what to God's name? Profaned it among the nations whom they were supposed to be a light to. Yes. Yes. That's you know that's really a good point too. The whole point is their relationship as a nation. Remember, it's a national covenant, not the individual salvation covenant. But this was the national covenant as a nation. They were created and put upon the land to be a light to the world, and they had responsibility in it, right? And so, because they were not fulfilling their responsibility, they were actually doing the opposite. They were defiling God's holy name. And so God says, for my name's sake, therefore I will do these things. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What part of yeah, exactly. All right. So in Rob's sermon he talked about then that the the penalty for disobedience also must be paid. There's a requirement. In order for God to remain just and righteous, he must the the penalty must be paid. Retribution is God's righteous judgment. Um in Romans then he also referred to Romans chapter two verses 1 to 10 if you want to make a note and go back and look at it but it talks about God's kindness and patience leads to what repentance his desire is that none should perish no not one so he keeps reaching out keeps reaching out what have we seen in the book of Ezekiel on how he has been speaking through Ezekiel to the people Yeah. Where are we at this point here where we hit chapter 33 and, and on here with Ezekiel? How many years has Ezekiel been speaking to these people? It was in the 12th year, it said, right, of his captivity. So Ezekiel's been speaking through this message here for 12 years and calling out to the people saying, Thus saith the Lord, right, turn, turn to me. Why must you die in your sin? Right? So God is so faithful. He's, his kindness and his patience leads to repentance if you only will. So God doesn't, he's not a wrathful God that desires to punish, but because he's righteous God, he must judge. Yeah. Right? And it says <clears throat> in chapter uh, 2 of Romans in verse 5, it says, By your own stubbornness and unrepentance you bring wrath upon yourself. So really, one of the ways to, I think, have a conversation with people is to turn that and say, look, it's not God doing this to you. It's you doing it to yourself. By your own behavior, by your own rejection of God, God must judge. Right? And since none are righteous, all... Immediately. Right, right. You're right, because God is patient. So how important does that point out to us? How important is it that you and I understand the characteristics of our God? The fact that he is patient and therefore he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits, right? And he gives and he has so he's so filled with grace and so filled with mercy. He just waits on you and I and so apply that in your own life. How many of us have things in our lives that we know full well that we should not be doing or we should not be involved in, or things that we should be doing and should be involved with, but we aren't, and we keep giving excuse after excuse after excuse, and the Lord doesn't seem to come down on us with a hammer, right? And, and so the Lord is doing what in that? What are, we, what are we to remember about who God is? He's patient. 
So the patience of the Lord, it says your stubbornness and your unrepentance brings upon wrath upon yourself. You do that to yourself. If, in, if God has to pour wrath out upon anyone, it is not God that, that is fully responsible in this. God will do it to retain his, his character and to retain his righteousness, right? And to be fair, right? And we're all about fairness, right? But God's desire is that he not have to, to judge anyone. He really desires that everyone would just repent and turn. That's what he wants. The righteous judgment of God will render to every man according to his deeds, whether it be faith or whether it be rebellion. He will save those of faith. You are blessed. You get my grace. You get a free pass because Jesus paid for it, right? But for those of you who remain in rebellion, and that's what we're looking at with Ezekiel, he's going to say unto them what? I never knew you. That's right. Depart from me into everlasting um, judgment. Um, I love that that you brought that up. That's exactly right. Because one of the things that we, we got to see by looking more carefully at these two people groups was that there were, there were those who were the evildoers, the wicked, that were obviously out there. But then there was those fellow citizens who he called the ones that, who did righteousness. But the, obviously their doing of righteousness was not, was not that righteousness which leads unto salvation. It was not a righteousness that belonged to the Lord, but whose righteousness was it? Their own. When, when we made a list of them, what were, what were they doing concerning the Lord? Yes. Not God's righteousness. And regarding God, what were they saying about God? His way is not right. That, I don't like that. That's not, is that not what we heard on that video yesterday from the people on the street when you talk about God and one day he's going to judge? Well, if that's the kind of God he is, right? I don't want him. I don't want anything to do with him. Boy, does this book not open our eyes to see that, that it's all about submitting to God as the, as the Lord God, right? Let's define that together, by the way. His name is the Lord God because all that we're looking at today is... is uh, under the, the title of that, God will act for his name's sake, right? So um, the Lord God is the title that this whole chapter is given by. And I looked up the couple of words on that. Did anybody else take time to look those up again? Maybe not, but I just want to show you. It's, it's the, the word Jehovah. And I know I don't do that very well. Okay, so what do we know about that word Jehovah? I know we've talked about this many times. Let's just put it up on the board and make it uh, real clear. Okay, it's God's personal name. And for Israel, it's God's what name? His covenant name. Um, it's also what, what else, what else does the Lord God tell us about himself in that name title? Authority. authority. He's the one with authority. He's the Lord. Whoops. Ruler. 
authority. Right? So it's the one who exercises supernatural authority over mankind. Right? Master. I love that word too, master. Okay. So then when we look then at those Thessalonians, second Thess, I'm just going to put these up here for your reference then concerning the, his name. Uh, second Thessalonians 1, I'm going to do 4 to 8 as my points that, that to remain just he must judge. I'm also going to put it this way. Without judgment, there is no righteousness. Without judgment of evil. So in order to remain true to his name, that he is the Lord, that he is the ruler, that he is the covenant God, which, by the way, therefore, he is the covenant-keeping God. And if he is going to keep his word to Israel, and his word to Israel was what? Well, you can say, let's say chapters 1 to 32 in our previous lessons, right? Gave us that. We also saw, see his word to Israel is in um, Deuteronomy uh, 28. Let's just do 28 and 29 because that, that lays it down pretty well right in there. If you go back into those. Those are his promises. How, his word to Israel was, obey me and I will bless you. Disobey and there will be cursings. I'm going to put you upon this land. You're going to be my people. This is how I want you to represent me. Now you can go on into all the other areas of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you can find the full picture of all the things that God desired from his people. But his word to Israel was, were basically these things that we've seen thus far in chapters 1 to 32 and Deuteronomy on the whole in chapter, uh, or those two chapters, 28 and 29. And because he is a covenant God, his word to Israel then had to be kept correct? In order for him to retain his name as the Lord God. All right. And then I'm going to put on here also this other reference in Romans, just so you can have it to look at if you're interested. It's really kind of fun to me to go back to New Testament or or forward rather to New Testament things and pull them back in and kind of lay them in. I got so excited when he was preaching yesterday. I was going, oh, my gosh, that's just like what we're seeing in Ezekiel. It's, like, amazing how there's this beautiful tapestry. In the first video, um, in, I think back in um, Ezekiel part one, David also made the comment about looking at the Old Testament. Since we have the New Covenant and the New Testament, we need to use that. If we were studying the Old Testament in light of what we know with the New Testament. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I tell you what, fulfilled prophecies that we have right now are such a blessing to us. And in Romans, it talks about that the old, the things of old were written for our edification, for our encouragement that, right, that we might know the Lord, that we might follow the Lord, that we might, you know, come into this faith walk in a, in a stronger, more powerful way. So 
for you and I to reflect on what has been accomplished is awesome. It's one of the reasons I started us on part two with that video on what has been fulfilled about these promises to Israel. And we got to see the many things that were noted in that film about how God is beginning to bring the people back on the land. They have now been reestablished officially as Israel, a nation, which is unheard of for a nation to, to be uh, um, dissolved and then reestablished like that. It's never been done before in history. And for God to bring back their language, for God to bring water to the land to begin to, to bear its fruit. And we're only at the beginning of this. I mean, God is in that day when God fully does this for Israel. What is the land of Israel going to be like according to what we saw this week? Like the Garden of Eden. I've said that so many times that I couldn't remember where that was in Scripture. Now I know. It's in Ezekiel. And I mean, I remembered studying it at one point, and it stuck in my brain so well that I've always quoted it, but I couldn't remember where I'd seen it. So it's exciting. All right. So now, chapter theme. So let's let, now that we've kind of laid a good foundation about the fact that God is preserving his name, that his name is the Lord God. And in that name, we see him as the Lord, the ruler, authority. We also know that he is righteous, right? And that he must maintain that righteousness. So with Edom, concerning Edom, we see them then as an enemy to God and to God's people, right? So let's go through systematically. What did you title this particular chapter? What is the theme? It's so simple. Prophecy against Edom. That's good. That is, is our Mount Seir. If you want to use the specific wording, that's in verse 2 right off the top. Okay, so there's our title. Let's look at our, our paragraph titles. Verses 1 to 9, what did he say there? Say it again. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. It will be laid waste. Okay. What is the key repeated word? What is the most dominant word in those first nine verses? Desolation. Good. The I will is also in there. And actually, that flows through the whole book, doesn't it? I will, I will, I will. Okay. One of the things, I'm sorry, go ahead, Raquel, say it again, hon. That's in verse 12, then you know that I am, oh, in Genesis 12, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm so sorry, I'll keep going, verse 12, okay, thank you, yes. All right. In verses one, nine, one through nine, do you, did, one of the things Kay asked us to look for were the words, things like therefore and because, right? Do you see a because statement in this, these first few verses? So what is the because behind what he's going to do? Because you have had an everlasting enmity. And it, of course, the enmity is against who? Israel. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to note this on here. Let's see if I can make room for that because you have had 
everlasting enmity. Oh, boy, that's a big word. E-N-M. I, I always have spell check on my, on, my <laughs> on my computer, but when I'm on the board, there's no spell check. Okay, because you have had everlasting enmity, therefore, what am I going to do to you? In verse 6. I will give you. And that leads to exactly what you said, um, Kathleen, about that they would be made a desolation, right? So I will give you over to bloodshed. Or you can say it as Kathleen said, uh, I will make you a desolation. That word desolation comes up again and again. So I'm going to hang on to that one. Because, let's see, I will give you over to bloodshed. So it's really kind of neat because as you start to see this flow of thought here. Now, 10 to 12, there's another because. In verse 10, what was it that he says? Because what? Yeah, because you said, basically, Israel will be mine. Now, what are the two lands that he's talking about, by the way? Yeah, the, the split nation, the northern and the southern tribes of Israel. At first, I was thinking maybe he's talking about my land and their land, and these two lands would be mine. But then later, I, I got to thinking, well, except that he's talking about taking something that's not his. And so then I got, oh, I bet that's talking about the north and the south, the no- northern and the southern tribes. Well, he says, because... You said, now why is that a problem that he said, that they said that? (laughs) Yeah, wasn't it? (laughs) We will possess Israel's land. Oh, no, never. No, no, people are so compliant now to the Lord. They're just very happy for Israel to be on their own land. And therefore, because they said, we will possess Israel's land, what? I will what? Yeah, I will deal with you. Yes. Um, and therefore, because how is he going to deal with them then? What does it say at the conclusion? I will judge you. Okay, so there's that judging quality of God again where God does judge the unrighteous, does he not? All right, so that's in 13 next. It's 13 to 15. We'll finish this one up. It was a very short chapter. 13 to 15, again, there's a because. This one is a little more lengthy because they did a few things here. Because what? In verse 13. Okay, you have spoken against me. Me who? Okay, because you have spoken against, yeah, you can go on and on on that, but I'm going to just mark it that way, because you have against, spoken against me, and I'll mark it with my symbol of God, which is like I use a triangle in purple, and that's not how I mark God. So because you have spoken against me, Pardon? You're welcome. You will get it in the mail. You know that, right? (laughs) Okay. Because you have spoken against me and have done what? 
multiplied your words against me. So it's just an expansion on that. And, and he says, by the way, what? And I have heard it. I like that. What does that tell you about our God? He does. He hears everything, doesn't he? He hears the, the dealings and the workings of the just and the unjust. He knows what's going on on planet Earth, does he not? And he says, so then what is he going to do? Yeah, now comes in that word that was brought up early about the desolation, because desolation is a key word in this book, right? So he says, and I will make you a desolation. Now, if you got anything close to this flow of thought, then you did, you did well. It does not have to be exactly like mine, okay? It just has to be close to mine. You just have to have the same. Well, I mean, you can't make up stuff, right? You, you got to get the flow of thought in here. The point is you want to see what is God speaking to Israel at this, or at this point to Edom, And he's saying to Edom, I will give you over to bloodshed. Why? Because you've had an everlasting enmity with me and my people. And because you have said, we will possess Israel's land. In other words, you've been arrogant against me. You've been defiant against me. You've been presumptuous against me. I will judge you. Right? And because you have spoken against me and I have heard it, I will make you a desolation. So here's the, this is our flow of thought then for Edom. Now, tell me this. Did you mark any time references in this chapter? (laughs) Have you marked any time references in this chapter? Okay, and what does it say? Okay, at the time of the end, and that's verse 5. At the time of the punishment of the end. And that was in verse what? Same verse? Okay, that's why I only put one down on my page. Because <laughs> I put them together. Okay. So, so would you say then that the specifics of what God is going to do concerning Edom is future or finished? It's this future at the time of the end. When you get into um, end-time Bible studies and you start marking things like the time of the end, you begin to look for that phrase, the end. And you do have to look at it in context to what's being said. Now, what we do know about Edom is that... that um, Yes, there has been at least a partial judgment that God has made against Edom at different times in history, right? We see God coming to Israel's rescue. We see uh, Edom having some enemies even come against her. But is Edom still around? Part of Yeah, but does Israel own that land? Yeah? Modern Petra, which is in which country? Jordan. Jordan. That's right. It flows, it's, it's 
uh, south of the Dead Sea, and it's that area down there, and they call it the Araba, also is another word for it, the desert or the wilderness sort of, right? Mount Seir area. Okay, so in this regard, Edom is not utterly destroyed, right? Has not been totally wiped out yet. The people are not absolved yet, correct? So we know this is future, and he says it's at the time of the end. That time of the end is a word... uh, that I always mark with a little puffy cloud, you know, and color it in with blue so that I always know that that's talking about end time events, okay? That when he fully fulfills this, it will be at the time of the end. All right, so let's move on to 30. Do you have any other questions about 35 before we move on? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, he sa- and the, there is a, a key repeated word in here where he talks uh, about. He says, "And then you will know that I am the Lord." In verse four, and in verse nine, and in verse twelve, and in verse fifteen. Isn't it amazing? In fifteen verses, he says it four times about this country. That then, when I do these things, then they will know that I am the Lord. Amazing. That's right. That's right. I am the Lord and I am the judge and I will. And, uh, you know, and as you have said in verse 36, let's move. Let's transition to 36. What is the very first word in chapter one, verse one of 36? And so what does that do with this first part of this message in 36? It links it back, doesn't it, to the previous message? So it's, it's, a, it's a flow of thought still that has not finished, correct? So he's still giving the same word to him, and he's saying, And you, son of man, also prophesy to the mountains of Israel. So first he's dealt with Seir, Mount Seir, or Edom. And now he's saying, Now I want you to talk to my people, Israel, right? And he says, About my land, Israel, what does he do there? What are our key words? Let's start with that part. Okay. The mountains of what? All right. The other? Uh, there's that I will. That one became very significant in this particular chapter, didn't it? And the therefores, now those are terms of conclusion, so you want to, but you need to have marked them. That's good. No, good, good call, James. A lot of therefores, and anytime there's a therefore, you need to know what is it there, and the word because is also in there, right? Um, Profane. My jealousy, I will, my jealousy, my holy name, and he talks about in my jealousy that he will do certain things, yeah, the word bereave, 
Now, I think this particular chapter was interesting because it's very long, right? Go ahead. Not for your sake. Uh, the word wrath is another good one. And my wrath. And my, okay, cause, so all these are, are descriptions of the things that are going on. Let's, let's write on here our literary flow also, just so we don't, for, we don't miss that. That literary flow is 36.1, starts with and, right? And when does it make its transition? Yeah, 36.16. What is the transition there? Yeah, whoops. Let me write that up. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, so, another, so it just shows you a second thought. Then the word... Of the Lord, it came to me saying these things. So we see there's a there's a break right here between the first sixteen ver- the first fifteen verses and that second fifteen. Okay, so that shows you your literary flow. Flow. Um, we now when it talks about the nations, is there any one specific nation that's actually mentioned along with those nations other than Israel? Edom is mentioned again. I just I don't know how important it really is, but I just think it's interesting that he included that in. What does that tell you then? Having studied this and looked at the characteristics that God mentions about Edom as a people, when he flows into the next chapter, and it's the same flow of thought, remember, we haven't left 35's thinking. He talks about the nations and he includes Edom as a reference what does that do for us about our understanding about the nations? Okay. Yes, that there's a judgment based upon the same kinds of characteristics for these other nations as well, right? That there is a defiance apparently among these other nations that are against Israel in some form or fashion. Yes, and specifically, if they're not just against the nation of Israel, who else are they most specifically against? Yeah. Right, and so, yes, because what happened on the land of Israel, the nations around them began to profane God's name. And so as he speaks about these other nations, these nations are also profaning the name of God. All right, exactly. Okay, so when we enter into 36, then we've gone from God looking at or, or judging Edom. Now we've moved into 36, and, we're, and he makes, us, he makes a, a switch as far as it's almost like a contrast or a comparison. He's talking about then the, the land of Israel itself, right? And concerning the land of Israel, what does God say there in verse 3? Done this to you, 
Yeah. That's right. I love that verse that it's for good reason. In other words, God is really justifying himself, saying it's for good reason that I judge, right? It's just like it said back in, in, uh, Rome, in Romans that it says it's your own stubbornness and unrepentance uh, uh, and unrepentance that you bring wrath upon yourself, correct? That's what it says in Romans. They're bringing it upon themselves. And he, he in an indirect way, he's saying the exact same thing that is said in Romans 2 verse uh, 5. He's saying for good reason, they, they who? Did you mark that word? They who? The nations, those other nations, your enemies have made you, you Israel, desolate and crushed you from every side, that you would become a possession to the rest of the nations. And you have uh, taken up, been taken up in the talk and the whispering of the people. Now, is God concerned about the the talk and the whispering about His nation? Yes. Yes. Right, right. That's right. That's right. Very good. You know, and that that's gonna, that particular concept about the God judging and him separating the sheep from the goats and the sheep from the sheep. We saw that back in chapter, was it 34, 33, one, one, about the shepherds and the separating the sheep. Right, it talks about and I will dis, and I will uh, judge between one sheep and another. He he says of that, um, and so we see in thirty six that God is making a judgment also here, even about His own people, and He's saying for good reason those nations have made you desolate, and so and and ultimately it was God then that made that actually made them desolate. So let's go through then. In this chapter 36, on the whole, what do you think the primary message is in this chapter? Well, there is going to be a comfort for them eventually, but do you see the word comfort, 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 comfort in here? No. Okay. What is repeated the most that seems to be the most significant point in this? Give me some, I'm sorry, I can't hear you guys restoration okay is that a key repeated word what was okay the 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 covenant is mentioned in there and that's the how correct that's the how god let me hold on just a second go to your i will list let me see if we can do this together because this might be helpful because this is where for me it all really kind of started gelling in my brain Obadiah, okay. Um, he's going to do all these things. I will, I will, I will. Hold on, let me find my list. I will. He says in, um, he, he opens those first few verses. Let's drop down to verse, starting in verse 16, though, because that's where we see a break also. That first message is, is the Lord talking about, for good reasons, the nations have made Israel desolate and crushed her. And then he says, surely in the fire of my jealousy, 
I have spoken against the rest of the nations and all Edom. That's in verse 5, right? Do you see that? Verse 5, go look at it. Surely in the fire of my jealousy, I have spoken. My jealousy for what? For his holy name. He says, look, it's about me, guys. As a matter of fact, he's very careful about that. What does he say? It's not for who? It's not for your sake that I act. So when he, st- when he starts elaborating on the I wills, he says, I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to do it for your sake. I'm doing it for my name's sake. Hold on. Let me get my page open. He says in verse 20, when Israel came to the nations where they went, what did they do? They, they profaned my holy name. Now, what had they done when they were on their own land? They had profaned his holy names. Why had he, had he you know, ex, uh, caused them to exit off of the land? Yeah. What, do you remember when we went back and we were studying in part one about the holiness of God and his glory, leaving the temple and leaving Jerusalem? And just before that, we were shown by God the abominations that were taking place right at his very temple itself, at the gates, at the doorway, at the altar, at the... You know, at every place you turn, the people were worshiping other idols right in his face. And the people were standing and the, the priests were standing on the uh, threshold of the door of God himself, turning their backs to God and prostrating themselves toward the east. Do you remember that? So here they were worshiping other uh, deities. Talk about an abomination. So when he says that they, prof- when they then were exiled and then they came to these other nations then what did they do they repented they turned around they started behaving themselves no they're still profaning it says and when they went they profaned my holy name because it is said of them now when they were ex- or when they were uh, exiled off their land how did that profane god's holy name Yeah, it's going to look like, well, wow, what kind of a God do you worship that would allow this to happen to you, right? And by that form of reasoning, which is very human, uh, the world then said, wow, what kind of God is that, right? And so in in the doing of that, in the fact that God had to to exile, and he's already said earlier, and and I exiled him for good reason, right? But in the fact that I had to exile them, that also profaned my holy name. Yes. Rather than look to their God, you know, look to us, look to God. A lot of times we look at his blessings more than him. You're absolutely but, right. But the other nations were filled with that, with their God. Yes. You know, and they worship him and say he's blessed. It is so, and it's so easy for. In their eyes, he isn't blessing them. Right. It's so easy for us to fall into that trap of saying, what, what is in this for me? And I'm in this relationship with God to see what God will do for me. And that is a wrong attitude, guys. And if that's the way you live your life, you're going to be, first of all, you're going to be greatly disappointed on many occasions. But secondly, it's an inappropriate way to approach God because it's all about the fact that he is God. And he says that in this book, I am. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. 
to recognize him that he is the I am, the self-existing one. He is the covenant-keeping God, but he is also the ruler and the master of the universe. He is the creator. He spoke a word, and it all came into existence. And for you and I to, to bow down, number one, in, in humility before that, to simply acknowledge him as the all-powerful God that he is, and to secondarily to recognize that, that his way is right, and that's what these people had not done. We just saw that in the previous two chapters. They were saying about God's way. God's way is not right. And in, in relationship with God, if you do not want to profane God's holy way, you need to be careful that you do not take your life circumstances and say, God is not right. This is not fair. He's not being good to me. He's not. If this is the kind of God he is, then ABC. What do, what do we need to, to do in, uh, with difficult situations in our life, for instance? Okay. What are you teaching me? Or, and, I mean, that's good, and? And how might I use this difficulty in my life to glorify you, to proclaim your name? To, in spite of my circumstance, to say God is right, he is just, he is holy, and guess what? There's an eternal glory coming for me because I bow my knee to him. And that's all I need to keep me going. That's all I need. Because eternity is a long time, right? This is so temporal. We don't feel like it is sometimes, but this is, this is so temporal. So perspective is everything. God says, look... Because you whined and bellyached and turned your back against me and did not give me glory and did not give me honor and did not bow your knee to me, therefore now I've had to judge you, I've had to punish you, I've had to bring exile upon you as my people, and now the world is profaning my name because of you, right? And so God says that, and and so the reason why God now is going to begin to do the things that he will do for Israel, he's giving them a promise of redemption, yes. He's giving them a hope of a future hallelujah moment. Yes. But why is he doing it? Is he doing it because, because they deserve it? And is our relationship with God, does it have anything to do with what we deserve? What is it all about? Who God is. He is the Lord God. For that reason and that reason alone, we should bow our knee. He created us. He gave us life. Yes, he desires good things for us. Yes, he loves us. Absolutely, beyond all things, sent his son for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But then it's, it continues on. That whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is about us bowing our knee to who our God is, who the Lord God is, and taking circumstances, which is, would you say that's what Ezekiel has done? Taking his circumstances? Is he bowing his knee or is he whining about what God has done? He's bowing his knee. He's, think about the things he's done. Do you remember the, the signs that he's done so far for God as God's watchman and as God's prophet? He's had to lay on this side and lay on that side and shave his head and all these different things, Right. What are, the, what are your sacrifices for the Lord in your life? Is your whole life a sacrifice? Are you a living sacrifice unto the Lord? Are we being that? Or are we whining all the time because life is hard, my body's getting old, hormones are raging, <laughs> you know, whatever. 
And, and those are trivial in compared to what many people go through. That's right. Be thankful in all things and, gl- and give him glory. Bow your knee to him. That's where it said in Thessalonians, they were persevering and enduring in their tribulations and their trials. And for that reason, it glorified God and was a, a true testament to their faith in God. That they were, that, that regardless of the persecutions, number one, they wouldn't turn their back on God and say, God is not fair. But rather they would say, I don't know necessarily why God has given me the life he has given me, but I will give it back to God in honor to him. I will live it the best that I can in joy, in pleasure, knowing that it pleases him that I am who I am, where I am, what I'm doing, whatever that is. Surrender. That's right. Surrender it all. So that, let's finish this, this flow of thought then. So he's saying it's about his holy name that, that this whole chapter is about, right? It's, he's, yes, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. But why will he? I will vindicate my holy name. So there we've got a theme. Oops, upside down. Yes, but it isn't. <laughs> right. Now, he created us for his pleasure and for relationship and fellowship with us. We are to be there as his, as his uh, friend, but to give him glory. We, our very lives, our very existence, give God glory because we, we through our existence, through the balance of this this global thing called planet earth and all that surrounds us through the balance of nature through um, who we are our personalities through the fact that we have life and breath all this proclaims who god is that he's the creator that he's the life giver that he's all powerful that he's all knowing that he was able to place everything perfectly in its order and that things stay in balance all these things proclaim who god is we are here to give god glory That is our design purpose. Okay, I will vindicate my holy name is our theme then. So now knowing that's our theme, we have to see how in each of the paragraphs God vindicates his holy name. In verses 1 to 12, what does he do? And he says in verse 11, and thus you will know that I am the Lord, right? Well, so what does that tell you about when this is? <laughs> because the question, you just jumped ahead a little bit, but that's it. At what point does God say to his people, or at what point does Israel become God's people? Or is Israel God's people today? Have they believed on that seed that he promised? Have they put their faith truly in what the word of God has been to them? What about through the message through Daniel? Right? That that is a... That 70th, that, that, that 70th week of Daniel that God has says, I'm going to do these things. He gave to Daniel in chapter 9, verses, I think it was tw- uh, 
is it 24 to 29, something like that. It's right there at the end of Daniel uh, chapter 9. He says to Daniel, Daniel, to you and your people, I, I, um, what is it? it? It is a, it is, and your holy city, I, there are 70 weeks decreed. I decree these weeks for you. And a decree is an official, irrevocable, sovereign, it's like a covenant. And it's sealed and it cannot be revoked. That's why in Romans where we looked later at the week, it says, and my gifts and my calling are irrevocable. When God speaks, he means it. When he gives it as an oath, he means it. And so he says to Daniel, I decree this for you and your people, 70 weeks. For those of us who did Daniel, how much of 70 weeks has been accomplished? 69 of them. That takes us up to the fall of the temple in 70 AD, which is what I marked on here. We're up to 69 weeks are fulfilled. Now, I know that's outside of what we're studying in Ezekiel, but it's just a review for the rest of us to remind ourselves what we know. So what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Daniel's 70th week. What falls in between? The church era. That's where we see Romans come in. Romans chapter 11. Does it begin to make better sense to you in light of knowing that? What is it that Romans 11 is all about? The grafting in of the, of the Gentiles to the Jewish roots and faith. And what does it say about um, the Jews in chapter 11? What has happened to them? That's right. Right. So, ta- I mean, it's a really lengthy teaching and study, and I, I would love to do that right now, but we don't have time. But, but Daniel, or I mean, Romans chapter 11 talks about this time frame right here. Where we are grafted in. And until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, God will continue to work with us, the church. But when he's done, when the last of the Gentiles has come in, then it will be time for God to finish this last week for Daniel and his people. That 70th week then will be filled, right? And that's when God is going to do for Israel as a nation what is being spoken of here in Ezekiel 36. Yeah. Wow. Yes. That's ex- 924. So it starts in 24 and it's through 27. Is that correct? 24 to 27. That's what I thought. Okay. All right, so he, so let's go back now and get our themes in. I will vindicate my holy name. 1 to 12, how is he going to do that? What is he going to do? He says in verse 11, he says, and then you will know that I am the Lord. What does he say then that follows that? What is he going to do? He says, and I will again. One through, it's just one through 12. What do you see he's going to do there? Yeah, I will turn to you. You who? You who? (laughs) I will turn to, I'm going to put on here, my land, right? That's who he's talking about. You, my land. And what will, and then what will happen? 
Yeah, and what will happen with my people? And my people will do what with my land? If they will inhabit it, they will possess it. They will, they will cultivate it. They will live upon it, right? So he says to vindicate his holy name in order to accomplish that. How is he going to accomplish it? He's going to turn to his land. Now, has he turned away from his land at this point? Have we seen that in the book of Ezekiel? Had he turned it away from his land? Yes, he actually vacated it, correct? He's saying here that I'm going to, in order to vindicate my name, that I'm going to turn to my land, and when I turn to my land, my people will possess it. Yeah, yeah, that's why I, I replaced that. I will turn to you, or it's rather you, my land, right? I'm going to turn to my land. That's how I'm going to vindicate my holy name. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to my land, and, and my people are going to possess it. I'm going to get it back. I'm going to take it back. Have we begun to see that happening already? Yes. We're seeing the beginning of it. It's not fully there because the, there's going to be more yet in, in the next verses below. 13 to 15 could be, you could actually include 1 to 15 as one paragraph if you wanted. I actually went ahead and broke it down because there's that keyword bereaved in there, right? That you see it over and over there. So what does he say um, in 13 to 15 about his land? Yeah. So my land will no longer... Be bereaved of its children. And that's in, we see, this, well, I put verse 14 as the reference point. Okay, and then there's this break, correct? I even put on there, instead of thus you will know I am the Lord, it says, and you will not bear disgrace from the people any longer. Right? No longer disgrace. Do you understand? How does that, verse 15, you will no longer bear disgrace from the people any longer. Is that about Israel not having disgrace? No. No, because he's doing what? He's doing it for his name's sake. I will vindicate my holy name. And when you're no longer being disgraced, I'm going to get the glory. My name is going to be vindicated. Are you catching that? Isn't that awesome? All right, so let's go now to 16 to 21. Now he turns and he explains what happened. I, th- I, even, I actually went back to verse 3 again. I love, I love that verse. It's for good reason that the nations have made you desolate right what was the reason in 16 to 21 yeah Israel my people Israel defiled my holy name yeah Well, you know, it's really important just to stay focused on, I think if you catch this right here, 
as your primary, that it's for his holy name, then what you do is as you're moving progressively through here, the other thing, uh, Kay had asked you to pay attention to the thuses, the therefores, that the for this reason kind of statements. And you see that for this reason, I'm doing this, right? And it helps you see what the this is that he is saying I'm going to do in order to vindicate my name. So he says, um, in tw- so let's do this. In verse 23, he says, and then the, na- then the nations will know that I am the Lord, right? That's how he's going to vindicate his name. So what does he say he's going to do in 22 to 32? That's that whole segment about what? The, uh, there's, I will do what? Well, 22 to 32 is about that spirit thing, right? About my spirit coming. I'm going to sprinkle them with clean water. How, what do we recognize that as being? Because of affiliation with other verses. That's the new covenant. That there's going to be a time when they will enter into the new covenant. And when they enter into that new covenant with the spirit, by the spirit, what will they become? His people. And he will but be their God. Does that vindicate his name when that happens? Were they, when they were first placed on the land, supposed to be his people and he their God? Was that not the whole purpose? I mean, the whole point to the Abrahamic covenant was that God was calling a people to be his own. And he wanted a people to live upon the land in a way that glorified and honored him. That's where you and I are today. We are now living as the testimony and the witness to the world grafted in because Israel has been cut off, right? Not cut off from the promises, not cut cut off from the things that God says he will do for them and will do in them. There's a partial hardening until our time is finished. And the reason God substituted you and I in as the witness in the world is because what had Israel done? Would you say if Israel was given that rain back right now, right at this moment, that they would honor it? Would they honor the Lord if they were the witness in the world today? Would Jesus get the glory? Would the seed get the glory? Who is giving the seed glory? The church. So here we are in Romans 11, grafted in until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Then God is going to go back and he's going to finish that last week and fulfill through those people the covenant that he promised. Now, that's going to be the interesting part is how he goes about doing that. We're going to make a list on that in a second here. Okay, 22, it says that they will be my people. And I, their God. That's in 28. That was the verse I picked up. Now, anything close to that, you're good, okay? Now, let's look at 33 to 36. Pardon? Again? (laughs) You're going to put me out in the hall. (laughs) You're welcome, Margaret. No problem. You know I love you. (laughs) Okay, tell me what you see in 33 to 36. Pardon? Yes. I would like you to put that it says in 23 that the Lord's going to prove himself. In here? Yeah, he says, I will 
and the, and the, and then the nations will know that I am the Lord. That's your that's your after statement. That's exactly right. So what you should have is my. If you look at my chart up here, I don't know if you can see it very well, but I have a little red notation under each one of them. You'll get this list when you get my chart. But this is the becauses. Okay. Thus you will know, and then you will know, and then you will know, and then you will know. Then you because I'm going to do this. This is going to prove that I am the Lord. Okay, so all your titles are to do this, to vindicate my holy name. These are the things I'm going to do, and then you will know I am the Lord. Are you seeing the, the flow of thought? So that it's not, yeah, we could, if we did that, Marion, every one of them would be that. <laughs> then you will know I am the Lord, will be it. But what we want to do is see the progressive order. What are the points God is saying he's going to do in order to vindicate his name? He says, I'm going to turn to my land and my people will possess it, number one. Number two, my land will no longer be bereaved of its children as it had been before. I had to exile them because they were not keeping my name holy. And then in uh, the next one, he says, in Israel defiled my holy name. That's, and he said, for this reason, for good reason, they were exiled back in verse 3. And then in the, the next one, 22 to 32, it says, and they will be my people and I will be their God. In verse 28, when, I do, when that happens, I will vindicate my holy name. They will be my people and I will be their God. That's so cool. Then 33 to 36, I will restore their land. And, and you can say that in a variety of ways. What is the, I love the one about how he's going to restore it. Rebuild it, and it's going to be like what? Now, if that won't prove I am the Lord, what did he say he's even going to do about that water place down below? Do you remember? What's going to happen to the Dead Sea? Do you guys remember that verse? It's going to become like a fisherman's paradise. The water, there's going to be a fountain flow from the temple down to the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea will become fresh living water, and the fish will thrive there. And the Lord says he will make it a fisherman's paradise. That's going to be awesome. Now, it doesn't say that in Ezekiel, but it does say it. Okay. Uh, The desolate, I'm sorry. I'm just referring back <laughs> to another study we did. <laughs> um, no, I think that one's in, well, it might be in Ezekiel. It might be later in Ezekiel. I'm not sure, but it, it's there, promise. I saw it last night. You know what I really did like, though, in this 33 to 36? and 36, somebody read that verse real carefully. 30, in verse 36 of chapter 36. Okay, so who is, who is going to know? The nations. What nations? That are left round about. Did you notice that? The ones that are left. What does that tell you about some of the others? They're going to be gone, right? Like such as who? Such as Edom will be gone, okay? And he's saying, um, this to me looks like Daniel chapter 7, verse 12. Can somebody find that really quick? Daniel chapter 7, verse 12. I love going back to Daniel because it just fits in all of this. But, uh-huh. There's some that are 
an extension of life is granted. So in that time in Daniel that he's speaking of there, he's talking about the beasts that uh, come up out of the water and how they're trampling underfoot. I mean, there's a, there's a, the, the little horn and the, big, and the rather small horn is all covered in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, what is he saying around about that? Do you? Yeah. It's talking about the judgment. And he's saying, and at that time then, there's an extension of life granted to some. Some of the nations are not utterly destroyed at this time of Armageddon. At the end of this time, the 70th week. But an extension of life is granted to them. And then later we're going to see that that those are the nations that come up and worship the Lord. And if they won't, what does God do? He will not rain upon them. Yeah. So here he says, and then the nations that are left will know that I am the Lord. Isn't that cool? I loved, I caught that and it was just, it it blew me away when I saw that. Uh, The desolate land will be like the Garden of Eden. Now you can say this in a many uh, varieties of way. All you need to know is that the desolate land is going to be rejuvenated or rebuilt. Okay. However you want to say that is just fine. All right, one last thing is 37 and 38. One last paragraph. What will happen? The flock, what did you say about the flock, Kathleen? Yeah, the flock will be increased. And what will they fill? The wasted city. So that desolate land will become like a garden. It will thrive with with being beautiful and green and lush and full of fruit and bearing things, right? Bearing fruit and and vegetables and so forth. And then in 37, 38, then the land will also be bearing fruit of people itself, the flock, right? He says the waste cities will be filled with flocks of men, and then they will know that I am the Lord. I'd say I'm already at that point. I'm looking at Israel and seeing the people back on their land. I'm already going, wow, that's the Lord. Nobody, that should never have happened. That's the Lord. Think, think back maybe 60 years back. What was the church saying about the nation of Israel before 1946, 47, 48? That it was the church. Replacement theology is what they call that. The covenant, it's a covenant replacement theology where they believe that in the covenant of the church, we took over for, for Israel and that Israel, because it was no longer in existence, we couldn't even perceive that it would ever come back. We were that doubtful of God's word. Think of it. Good question. Do we even know what the percentage of Christians are in Israel? Wow. That's pr- that you think about that cuz I I remember this when I was there on my on tour the couple of times I was there but our tour guide in both cases I mean they know the history. 
they talk about Jesus doing this here and Jesus doing that here and Jesus did this and then this is where he was when this happened. So they, and they know the word of God better than you and me. They walk on the land, they walk into the presence of a certain city and they go, oh, this is where such and such happened. It says this in Acts chapter whatever, it says this in Matthew or it says this in John, but they do not believe it. They just think of it as a book of stories that Christians have made up. Even when it is a fulfillment. I mean, I look at Daniel. When Jesus entered, it says in, um, I think it's in Luke. might be in Matthew, but it's in one of the Gospels. Jesus enters into uh, Jerusalem. He approaches the city of Jerusalem. He looks over it, and he weeps. And he says, if only they had known the day of my visitation. They should have known through what Daniel and the prophet had written. And Daniel, in his prophecy for 70 weeks, he told them exactly when he would come there to be their savior, when he would make an arrival as the prince. From the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince it will be and then it was the 69 weeks and then following after that is the last week no 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 the 70th week begins in um, the Medo-Persian empire when Cyrus issues a decree to go back and rebuild see right now the temple has fallen right here right their, t- their Jewish temple has fallen. There's in um, the Medo-Persian, oh, in the Medo-Persian Empire, and I don't remember what the date was. Oh, the 70 weeks stopped, though, when the temple fell. The 69 weeks stopped. And when the... Go back and read that, though. I think it has something to do with the temple falling, too. Maybe. I'm not sure. Now that I've, I've, it's vague in my mind now. It's been several years since we did it. Then after, there's the 70, and then there's 62 weeks. Then Six, the 62 weeks, which is Messiah the Prince, and then what? As, well, there's seven weeks first. Yeah. Okay. 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 So, okay. Oh, but then it does talk about the temple going down, right? I thought it was in there. Anyway, I'm sorry. I don't want to get too dis. Okay. It may. You're right. So this may be the end of the 69 right here. And then, but it mentions the temple being then cut off after that 69 weeks and the temple is going to be cut off, right? Okay, so that's in Daniel, right, 9, 24 to 27 is where that prophecy is. Then it talks about this week that will follow. That's where Romans falls in between where we are grafted in until God will then do this last 70th week of Daniel. He will accomplish it, right? Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I do, but I wonder if I've got it. Yes. Well, and we've studied that before. Back when we were actually doing eschatology study and we were doing, um, we've done Revelations and we've done Daniel. We've done Daniel a couple of times and done Revelation twice at this church already. So um, all that was fresh in my mind back then. I do have the big picture, though. I do know the timeline. I I recall the unfolding. I know that 69 weeks have been accomplished and that Messiah the Prince has come that the temple now has fallen, just as it said in that prophecy, and now we are waiting for that one last week to be accomplished. Now, this is interesting. What, will he, what does it say that he will do? Go back into our th- uh, in chapter 36, where it starts in 24 to 32. Uh, in that section there where it talks about that new covenant, what does he say he is going to do when Jesus returns? Right? He comes at the end of the 70th week, for those of you who don't know that. When he returns, that's when he says about Israel, all Israel will be saved. I want you to um, l- remember what you studied in Obadiah. He talked about, I'm going to destroy the wise men from Edom because of violence to their brother Jacob. They will be cut off forever. That's it in verse 10. Of Obadiah, and then in 15 he says, "As they have done, it will be done to them." In verse three it says, "Was arrogance of their heart has deceived them, right? Their arrogance." It talked about how prideful they were. They were they were wise men, and so forth is how it's portrayed in that one. And th- what does the Lord say? Is the reason in Obadiah in verse 21? Why is He going to do all that to Edom? There, it lines up with what we're seeing in Ezekiel. Because why? In verse 21 of Obadiah? And their kingdom will be what? will be the Lord's. That kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will... Why is he doing this? Because he says, I will vindicate my holy name. That kingdom will be mine. Those people, Israel, will be mine. That land will be mine. And I will vindicate my holy name. So he says the same thing in Obadiah that he has said already in Ezekiel also. So let's go now to uh, Jesus' second coming at this time, at the time of the end, when we see that at that time, and then, do you see verse 25 of Ezekiel 36? It starts with the word then. And then in 33, it says, on the day when I cleanse you from all your iniquities, right? So let's look in those passages there and talk about what God is saying about Israel. What is it he's promising to them? Give me some of the promises. Just list them off. Okay, does it say that? He says, I will be their God, though. All right. Okay, I will put my spirit. Put my spirit in them. That's exactly it, in a way. But they become, they become God's people under this new covenant that he's, gonna cre- that he's going to enter with them. 
which is the indwelling spirit, which is, yeah, okay. So what verse is that? 27, all right. He says, Israel, I will put my spirit in them. What else? Okay, I will gather them to their land, right? What verse is that? Okay. Will cleanse them of all their sins. Give them a new heart. Now, how are they going to be different with this new heart than when they were before? What is their going to be behavior then as a result of that new heart? They will walk in my statutes. Yes, but I think this, doing it on a timeline like this and just putting these events of Ezekiel 36 visually for you right here, you get a better concept of exactly what God is saying. Have we seen some partial fulfillment of some of these things? Yes. Has Jesus come and instituted that new covenant of the Spirit? Yes, but we've got a break in time because what has happened with Israel as a nation on the whole? They have rejected that Messiah. They have rejected that promise. They have defamed God's holy name. They have profaned it in the world. And therefore, God had to remove them off their land. Not once, but twice, right? So now that their temple fell at this point, and remember what Rob said? Who was it brought it up? About Rob talking about the temple, how not one stone was left upon another. How did God go about doing it? Was that you, Brenda? What was it that fascinated you? Those the Romans when they came in were convinced that there was gold in the mortar of the stones of the temple. And so they, they ripped it to smithereens. They didn't leave one stone left upon another looking for gold. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I'm thinking, okay, who started that rumor? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good, huh? All right. <laughs> Uh, so, and then they will no longer be what? Pray, right? They will no longer be pray or insulted. Because God will have done what? My holy name. Vindicated, Right? I love it. His holy name will be vindicated. Okay, I'm in the hall now. (laughs) I saw some look. (laughs) All right. So that gives us a really good outline of the two chapters. We see the flow of thought. He handles Edom. He talks about vindicating his holy name, particularly his holy name before who? The nations, right? That the, then the nations will know these things. And then they, the nations, will see that I am holy and that I, my, name is, my name is holy. Okay, so he says, I will turn my 
to my land and my people will possess it. My land will no longer be bereaved of its children. Israel will, who defiled my holy name, they will, but at that time they will be my people and I will be their God. The desolate land will be like the Garden of Eden and the waste cities will be filled with flocks of men. That will all happen at that day when Jesus returns and establishes himself. And that's where you tie in Romans chapter 11. Did anybody have questions on Romans 11? How will God save all Israel in one day? Do you guys remember that from the Revelation study? One by one. Do you remember? uh, Let's go back to Zechariah. I just want to show it to you. Because I think it's a really good verse. It does, a, it does a good job of, if I can find Zechariah, here it is. Um, chapter 12 and 13. Th- the opening of 13 says that in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David. That's a covenant with a nation, right? With a group of people. And then it says, and it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that they will, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. He goes on and talks about basically the cleansing of it. But when you go... Um, Yeah, that's how the, who will be cut off. He talks in verse 8 and 9 about how he's going to go about saving a whole nation without violating his, co- his covenant principles of how, how you come into covenant with God, right? How do you come into covenant with God? Is it done nationally? Do you do it with your family group? Are you born into it? No, it's, it's individual, right? And so... The one, va- the one passage that we can go back to is Ezekiel chapter 20. I want you to reread chapter 20 of Ezekiel and lay it in on top of what you see here in Zechariah chapter 12 and 13 and merge it with Romans chapter 11. It all makes sense. God will save each individual one by one. He says in Ezekiel 20, he will deal with them one by one. He will individually handle each person. He will judge each man for their own sin right and he will also enter into relationship in the same way in 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 Zechariah he says in the two parts in it in those days right here in the 70th week during these seven years God will little by little purge the unbelievers out those who will not of Israel will not in that day bow their knee he will purge them out two-thirds of them will die in that day one-third, however, will come through refined and purified. And that those then will all in one day bow their knee. And it says, and the fountain will be open for the house of David. And talks about, I will pour out my spirit upon them. And in one day, God will save them. All Israel shall be saved. So he will save a people group at the end of this time frame. And this is what he will do for them. Because the ones that are left that are still alive at the end of that, these are the ones who will enter into this covenant with him willingly individually one by one the, there was one in here i was going to look at this talks about in chapter 12 of zechariah it says that uh, the clans of judah will st- say in their hearts a strong support for us are the inhabitants of jerusalem through the lord of of hosts their god in that day i will make the clans of judah like a fire pot, pot. he goes on he says but it talks about them um mourning there it is in verse 11 in that day there will be great mourning in jerusalem like the morning of, uh, on the plain of Megiddo, the land will mourn every family by itself. The family of the house of David 
by itself. Their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. And their wives by themselves. So that's talking about the individually, one by one, God will turn the hearts of the people. Uh, That's in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 11 on. Talks about individually they will mourn. And that's the mourning of repentance. And they will turn their hearts to God and God will save them. He will not violate his doctrine of salvation. He saves one heart at a time. But he'll do it in a real supernatural, powerful way at that time. At the end of those seven years. And then all Israel will be saved and put back on their land. And they will be his people. And then what will the nation say? What will they know? He is the Lord. 